I, uh, I have a passion for revival and reading about revivals where God intervened in history, in a community, and the community was transformed. Uh, I was touched in South Korea when I was working at a school, uh, a boarding school, and over the, the course of a semester, another teacher and I prayed uh, for months for these students to encounter God, to experience God, that they would know his love, uh, that they would experience his glory or his manifest presence. And, and there was an outpouring of the spirit uh, at that school that has marked me. This happened in 2004. And so 20, almost 20 years, 19 years ago, 18 and a half years ago, the fall of 2004, I experienced God in a way that has changed my life and has marked me forever. And since that time, I've, I've read, I've studied revivals, I've prayed for revivals everywhere I've gone, I've prayed that God would pour out his spirit. And tonight I wanna share a few things to hopefully what we come away with is you have this desire to pray for the Salt River Reservation for Phoenix, the Phoenix area. And I, I think one of the things we want to do is, is look at the past, the vision. What is the vision of the kingdom? What is God's desire for the future? So what was the past like? What is the present like? What, is the, what could the future be? And then what are the promises of God? And then what do we do? And so starting out with the past, you know, I've been reading about the, the awesome people, trying, working on my pronunciation. And I came across an article called The Indian Wars in the Arizona Territory. And it was writing from around the time of 1872 and was talking about the autumn people. And there, for a time, the Federal Bureau, or the Bureau of Indian Affairs would assign an agent to care for or to represent the tribes. And then they switched because that was not work, the corruption. And so they assigned missionaries to represent the tribes. And there was a, a man named uh, Reverend John Stout. And he described uh, the situation, 1872, that, that things were shifting. And he wrote, if this was after the murder of a, an, a, an autumn man who he was described as a quiet, a peaceable man who left the reserve because there was no water. The murderer was let go, as were others in the area. And he saw the, the people turning from, they were a proud, honest, virtuous, hardworking, self-sustaining race that are fast degenerating. The chief, one of the chiefs wrote, our young men are getting drunk more on whiskey every day and we cannot keep the people from selling it to them. And bad men are doing bad with our women. And just in this paragraph, you see the pain that there's a murderer who walked free. 
a man who is just searching for water who was killed. We see that the whole tribe is the, the shift. And actually, I came across a report, um, and this was written in 1856 by a Lieutenant Mishler when he first came across the Otham people. He said this about them, besides being great warriors, they're good farmers, our husbandmen and farmers, the, the animals they care for, the farmers, they work laboriously in the field. They are owners of fine horses and mules, fat oxen and milk cows, pigs and poultry, and are a wealthy class of Indians. As we journeyed along the valleys, we found lands fenced and irrigated and rich fields of wheat ripening for the harvest, a view differing from anything we had seen since leaving the Atlantic states. They grow cotton, sugar, peas, wheat, and corn. As I sat upon the rock, Lieutenant Mishler wrote, admiring the scene, an old gray-headed Pima took pleasure in pointing out the extent of their domain. They were anxious to know if their rights and titles to their lands would be respected by our government upon learning that their country had become part of the United States. What he describes is a, a people that between the Atlantic coast and here, there was nothing like the Autumn people. They were not just surviving, they were thriving. They were, had fields, animals, they were warriors. They took care of their people. And it's this, this vision of the past, of the way that things used to be. 1900, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune written by a man who was deeply troubled by the federal government's treatment of the tribe. And he, he lamented, he said it was a, a time of starvation because of the diversion of the water. And he says the 6,000 Pima Indians are always the consistent and active friends of the white man, that they should be reduced from a condition of wealth and great prosperity to actual starvation through the neglect of the federal government. And to paraphrase, he says, it seems as if we are killing our friends. And he was writing, begging the government, begging those in power to do something to help those who were starving. We, we see that God blessed the awesome people. He gave them wisdom and they, they conquered, I don't know if conquered the desert is the right word, but they did what nobody else could do. They stunned those who came and saw them. And then through oppression, through betrayal, they lost their land and they lost their part of their culture, their way of life. And at a point, Satan came in, taking advantage of the situation that they were in and leading people astray. 
leading people to drink, leading people to devastation. And we see, as, as I've been here, I've, I've witnessed some of the devastation. I've heard some of the stories. And I think what we would know is that this is not the way it should be. This cannot be God's plan for the, this place. This is not his will for this place, not his will for these people. And so our role as followers of Jesus is to pray for the kingdom to come. To stand in the gap and say, Lord, this is not your will for our, your people. This is not your will. And there are things that, that can't be undone. The past can't be undone. The devastation from the past cannot be undone. But God is not bound by the past. God is free. And God can take the worst story and rewrite it. He can take the worst act of betrayal and oppression and turn it into the most beautiful story of salvation. And what God did through Jesus and the story that he wrote through Jesus' life, he can write in ours. And it's a story that God has written in other places for other peoples who have called out on his name and asking him to intervene. Jesus says, the first thing, what do we pray for? That the name of God would be holy and that the kingdom will come. What is the kingdom of God? And what is the what do we know? What would we expect in the kingdom of God? For example, in family relationships, what would represent the kingdom of God? In the relationship between a husband and a wife, what is God's will? Anybody can can answer. To love one another. Ephesians 5, what does Paul write? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's the kingdom reality. And as we look at the community, is that the dominant way that husbands treat their wives in the community? It's not, right? And so what do we do as Christians? What is what the, the privilege we have is to pray for the kingdom to come. To begin praying, Lord, let, let the author men, author men love their wives like Christ loved the church. Let them sacrifice their own lives for their wives. Let them love their wives like they love their own bodies. What's the next part for wives? Wives, respect your husband. Is that a, king, a reality in the community? That's also a need for prayer. Why, Lord, we pray that the women would respect their husbands. What about children obeying their parents? and honoring their mother and father. These are, these are kingdom realities. When the kingdom comes to a church, when the kingdom comes to a village, when the kingdom comes to a city, 
it changes our relationships. And we don't just pray kingdom come, but we pray let the relationships reflect your kingdom. What about for worship? What is the kingdom reality for worship? Boring services that people can't wait to get out of? Is that the kingdom coming? What is the king? If the kingdom comes to a worship service, what happens? Life. Life happens. Children come to Jesus. What else? What about the preaching of the word? When the kingdom is coming, what is the preaching like? It convicts. It's electric, right? I mean, there's preaching. You've heard preaching that it just moves you. And have you ever had a season in church where as soon as the service is over, you're like, I can't wait until next week. What's going to happen? That When the kingdom comes, the preaching is empowered. What about the worship in, in spirit and in truth? In spirit, their whole heart, not just with my lips, not just with my voice, but my whole spirit is worshiping God. And we've been in meetings, right, where our hands are raised and our spirit soaring, and it almost feels like the roof is going to blow off, or we just want to get down on our faces because we're overwhelmed by an understanding of the love of God. This is the kingdom coming. The Holy Spirit active in our midst to convict of sin, to expose sin, to reveal hearts, to heal hearts, to transform and to equip. When the kingdom has come to a church, the saints are equipped for the work of ministry, right? It's not just the pastor who's doing all the work, but everybody is anointed. Everybody's empowered. Everybody knows their role. Everybody's working together. Have you been in a church in a season like that where it's, you just don't know where the people came from, but they're all serving together in unity? That's the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, we experience that. What about unity, relationships within the church? What happens when the kingdom comes? What is the kingdom value? United. United. We're not gossiping. We're not tearing each other down. We're not the left side versus the right side. You know, I heard that there's the left foot Baptist and the right foot Baptist. And they split over which foot to wash first when you do the foot washing. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it sounds almost true, doesn't it? The red carpet and the gray carpet Baptist? No, I don't <laughs> Right? When the, when, when the kingdom comes, there's a unity, and Jesus wants us to be united. He says, Father, you know, unite them that the world may know your love that you sent me. There is a unity. These are kingdom realities that we have the privilege to pray for to come into our king, to come into our community. See, God's will is not just for people to be forgiven of their sin. It's for them to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Yes. And when a community is transformed into the likeness of Christ, everything changes. The families change. The schools change. The workplaces change. And this is what we have the privilege to pray for. 
There's a community in Guatemala called Almavanga. Has anybody heard of Almavanga? It's a town in the mountains in a valley in Guatemala. And uh, it's about 20,000 people. If I can find my notes. 20,000 people that lived in total poverty. They had four jails. And those jails were so full, they would have to bus prisoners to other towns. It's only a town of 20,000 people. Eight out of, uh, and uh, not only that, there were 36 bars. 36 bars for 20,000 people. Drunkenness was rampant. This was a town that exported four trucks of vegetables a month. There's a farming community, people living in poverty, alcohol addiction. 7 a.m., you would find men just drunk, passed out on the street. The domestic violence was rampant. Parents would spend all their money on alcohol. The kids would be neglected. There was an idol um, that was, was prominent in the community, the idolatry, the witchcraft. This sounds like a terrible place to live, doesn't it? There was a pastor there who was seeking to help the community. Once, one night a gang grabbed him and they put a gun in his mouth and they pulled the trigger but the gun didn't go off and they couldn't kill it. So after that, he called his church members together and they began praying every Saturday. They'd have a prayer vigil. They began fasting three to four times a week and God began changing the community. Today, there are no jails in the city. They went from four and overflowing to zero. They went from 36 bars to three bars. They went from four trucks a month to 40 trucks a week. They're now called the, the breadbasket of America, America's vegetable garden. Scientists from universities go there to study their agriculture. The carrots are actually as big as a forearm. George Otis Jr. captured this on a documentary called Transformation. One town that was the, the home of demons became a place where God was glorified, where sin was expelled in many ways, where God transformed the, the families, the churches, the communities, the family, the bars are gone. God can do this. God does this in answer to prayer. In Wales, in 1904, there was a revival. And it, it was so impactful, it, it hit the whole country, and coal miners would get off work, and they would go to, they'd get their family, they'd go to church, and they would be in church until 2 a.m. And then they would go home and they would get up at 4 a.m. and go back to work. 
and they were so transformed the coal miners stopped cursing at their animals. You know, they had the donkeys that would pull the coal carts and the mules, the horses. And they, because they got saved, they stopped cursing and it actually caused a slowdown in the mines because the animals didn't understand commands without curse words in them. <laughs> and they needed to be retrained. Police wore white gloves, or judges wore white gloves to symbolize the lack of crime. The police once were interviewed and they were asked, what do you do now that there was a, a revival, there's no crime? They said, well, before the revival, we went where the crowds were. And now with the revival, we go where the crowds are and the crowds are in the churches. And so they formed quartets and the police would sing in the churches for the revival meetings because there was no crime. God answers prayer. He responds to his people who pray. And we, we need a vision. We need a vision for what the kingdom coming would be like. What would it be like for the salt reservation if the kingdom of God came? If people were living by kingdom values, if people loved each other with the love of Christ, if they served each other with the love of Christ, if they had integrity like Christ, the character of Christ, the self-control and the self-discipline of Christ, this is the kingdom that God wants to bring to humanity. And he does it through prayer. He changes communities through prayer, through a small group of people who decide enough is enough. And how do we know that God does this? It's not just through historical stories, but the promises of God. What does God promise in 2 Chronicles 7.14? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Almalanga, Guatemala is exhibit A for this passage. They know what that means. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What the promise is if we will repent, God will come near to us. What does it look like when God comes near? Repentance, the changing, the transformation of our lives. Husbands loving their wives, wives loving their husbands, children honoring and respecting their parents, businessmen dealing honestly. Jeremiah 29, 12, 14. We, we might say, well, how do I know? How do I know that God will respond to us? I mean, he did that in Guatemala. He did that in Wales. But how do I know that he would do it here in Salt River? Jeremiah 29, 12 says, You will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. We may say, well, that was a word spoken to the Israelites in exile, the Jews in exile. How many of you know you can't make a promise to one child and the other child hears it? You can't say, oh, I only promised that to Caleb. Sorry, Elijah. What do we know as parents? 
if you make a promise to one child, it impacts every child. That's, <laughs> that's what we do. God has promised that if we will seek him with all our heart, we will find him. But is it enough? Can I make a difference? Is my prayer enough? Is your prayer enough? Could your prayer change the future of this reservation? Could your prayers change the future of Arizona? James tells us the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain for three and a half years. What was Elijah praying? He was praying that God would turn his people back. And how do we know that Elijah was a normal person just like us? That he wasn't super spiritual? That he wasn't uh, amazing? Well, what, what happened when Jezebel said she was going to kill him? What did, what did Elijah do? He ran away. And asked God to kill him. And he complained to God and said, I'm the only one left. And I'm not any better than my father's. Elijah just had the most powerful demonstration of God's power to prove that he is the living God since Moses. And a woman, who's an evil woman, says, I want to kill you. And instead of standing firm, like we would hope, like someone who just called fire down from heaven might do, Elijah ran away afraid. And not only did he run away afraid, he ran away depressed. So depressed that he wanted to die. He's blaming everybody, claiming he's the only one who follows God. I am surprised the Lord did not send the angel to slap him. <laughs> he was just like us. And if God could hear his prayer, God can hear our prayers. Maybe you know that the revival of Pensacola with John Kilpatrick, it's an AG church, 1995, I believe, 94, 95. One pastor who his church was thriving. They had a thousand or 2000 every week. They had a TV ministry. They had a great facility. But the pastor was aching because he knew there was so much more. And God spoke to him. And God said, if you will seek me like you did in your youth, I'll visit you. And so he began seeking the Lord first by himself. He would go into the sanctuary. He would pray. He would cry out for God to visit his church, for the glory of God to be manifest in his building. And then he changed, he began inviting his church to pray and they moved their Sunday night service to a special prayer meeting. And they would just pray for the community on, on Sunday nights. They would pray for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things they did is they put up 12 banners around the sanctuary and people would rotate. You know, maybe they pray for the families, that the kingdom of God would come to the families. They play, pray for the officials, that the government officials would repent and seek the Lord. They pray for all different topics, 12 different topics. 
And that's what they did. And they prayed for two and a half years that God would come. That God would reveal his glory in their church. And then he came on Father's Day 1995. And for five years they had meetings that four and a half million people attended. People from all over the world came to their church. They would wait outside for 12 hours in the sun, the Florida sun, to get a seat at a service. One man who had a vision for God's glory for his church and community, and then a church that caught that vision, and then a group of people that said, we will not let go of God until he answers. If we forget what God can do, we'll never ask. Because it won't even be in our mind. If we forget what it could be, what it used to be, if we forget God's promises, we'll give up. If we forget what he's done for others, we'll quit. But if we can remember these things, we can pray until we see it for ourselves. After the revival, people heard about the revival in Wales, other people started praying. There was a group of people in India, the Kasia Hills in India, some missionaries who prayed that what God did in Wales, he would do in India. And within a year, I believe 1,200 people came to Christ. It may have been more, it may have been 8,000, but I may be mixing the numbers, but an extraordinary number of people came to Christ. Well, missionaries in Korea heard about what God was doing in India. And they said, well, let's start praying that God would move, that he would do what he did there in our community. And they began praying. And they said this, we believed that since God was not a respecter of persons, God did not have favorites, and that he would not wish to give greater blessings in the Casilla Hills than in Korea. So we decided to pray at noon for an hour until the greater blessing came. So these missionaries prayed every, every day for an hour at noon. And after a month, someone said, let's stop the prayer meeting. We've prayed a month, nothing unusual has come, and we're spending a lot of time. I don't think we're justified. Let's just go back to work as usual. And the other missionaries said that seems reasonable, but they believed that the Lord would not deny Korea what he had given to his people in Kasia. And so they continued praying, but they changed their time to 4 p.m. so they could pray until they were done in the evening. And after four months, God visited Korea. When I was in South Korea in the early 2000s, 25% of the population was Christian. Japan, it's less than one-third of 1%, one percent, I think, are evangelical Christian. Taiwan is 6%. Other nations, Thailand, 3%. What's the difference? How could one nation in Asia that all have similar religious beliefs, Buddhism, and yet God visited Korea in such a powerful way that 25% of the population would turn to Christ. Because of prayer. It's 
because there were people who cried out, who believed in God's promises. John Kilpatrick, the pastor at Pensacola, says this, the truth is there's no quick and easy way to revival. We're not going to have true lasting revival without prayer. Not casual prayer, not convenient prayer, not common prayer. Nothing about revival is birthed in common places. If we desire God to move in extraordinary ways, we must be willing to do some extraordinary things. If you want to experience the over-answer of revival, you must be willing to dedicate yourself to the place of prayer. God has given us his promises. One, he's given us a vision for the kingdom. He's given us a vision for the way we should live, for the community we should have. Two, he's, he's given us his promises that declare, without a doubt, if you seek me, you will find me. If you call out to me, I will answer. If you will repent and draw near to me, I will draw near to you. The question is, will we respond to this? Everyone can look at our communities and lament and grieve over the past. Everyone can do that, but few stand before the living God of the universe and say, enough is enough. I know this is not your will for my people, and I will not let you go until you visit us, until you restore what has been stolen, until you heal our land, and I will stand before you until you do, and I will remind you of your promises. You know, my boys are here, and if I make a promise to them and I neglect that promise, they will not let me go. They will remind me, Dad, you said, Dad, you said, until finally out of exasperation, I have to say, yes, that's what I said. I'll give it to you. That's what we need. God can heal tribes. God can heal nations. God can heal people. The gospel is powerful enough. David has a story, there's a story in 2 Samuel, David had mighty men. He had wonderful warriors that surrounded him, powerful warriors, but there were three that were extraordinary. And there's this story that David is in the stronghold, and the safe place in the wilderness, and there was a, a garrison of Philistine soldiers, occupying soldiers, in his hometown. And so he's exiled in the wilderness and he looks toward his hometown and he just says, oh, I wish someone would give me a drink of water. I wish I could have a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. We don't know how loud it was when he said it, but my guess is it was just a fleeting expression of a longing for home. Just said, I wish, and, and we, you know, I wish I could have my mom's apple pie. I wish, you know, when you've been away, I wish I could have a pickle slushie. <laughs> <laughs> you know that longing. And so David just, 
whispers this longing, expresses this longing. Well, three of these men decide that they're going to break through enemy lines to get their king water. They're going to risk their life to draw a jar of water and bring it back to David. These heroic, brave, crazy men who say, you want it, I'll go get it. And somehow, you know, I think this has got to be a funny picture of one man running with a jar of water and the other two with their swords protecting him, trying not to spill the water. And then they bring it back to David. Can you imagine the joy they would have? They just did the craziest thing in their country's military history. And they're like, David, remember how you said you wanted water from Bethlehem? Here it is. And David pours it out onto the ground as an offering to the Lord. And he says, I can't drink this. The blood of the men is in this water. What he's saying is I'm not worthy of the offering that they've given me. Only God is worthy of this. But these three men were close enough to their king to hear the longing of his heart. The need of the hour is not for people to hear the longing of an earthly king and with swords and guns and daggers retrieve something to satisfy a physical longing. But there is a need for spiritual men and spiritual women to hear the longing of Jesus Christ that a people would be redeemed and that they would say we will break through the enemy lines and we will intercede until our people belong to the Lamb of God. The promises are sure. The vision is clear. This tribe will worship around the throne of God. The question is how many? And we have the grace and the honor and the privilege to stand before the Lord of hosts and to say, I will not let you go until my people bow before you and you visit us. I want to ask you, I want to encourage you to commit yourself to grab onto God and his promises and to say, I won't let you go until men love their wives like Christ in this place. Until women respect their husbands, until salvation rings through the streets, until the churches are flooded with people worshiping Jesus because I know you can do it, God. Why don't we take a moment and just ask the Lord to speak to us, to speak to you. It's not ordinary prayer that brings revival. It's not convenient prayer that brings revival. It's not prayer from the lazy boy chair from the couch in between Netflix shows 
that brings revival. It is extraordinary, sacrificial, on our knees before the Lord without ceasing, without stopping until we see it. And it may be weeks, it may be months, it may be two and a half years before God answers, but the people who know their God will do great exploits, says the word of the Lord. So let's take a moment and ask God to speak. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to hear the longing of your heart for the people on this reservation. Lord, you gave this people dignity and wisdom and strength and power. And it was stolen from them. And you've seen the oppression for 150 years in this place and how the enemy has attacked this people. And Lord, we are asking that you would touch our hearts. We're asking that you would give us a vision of your kingdom coming to this place. We ask that you would give us a vision of your glory over this reservation. And we ask that you would put it in our hearts to intercede until your vision, your longing for this people in this place comes to pass. Lord, I pray that just as that military lieutenant said, I have seen nothing like this since I left the Atlantic states. Lord, I pray that people from around the world would come and see the glory of God in this place, on this land, and that people from every nation would say, I have never seen anything like this. I have never experienced joy like this. I've never experienced peace like this. I've never experienced healing like this. I've never experienced love and kindness and welcome like this. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come on this land and that you would stretch out your hand and say enough to the devil and that your spirit would fall and convict us of sin and turn us away from wickedness and empower us to live in righteousness. We pray for families to be restored. We pray for addicts to be free. We pray for drug dealers to stop. We pray for those who are not working to work. We pray for the mentally disturbed to have peace. We pray for the demonized to be set free. Lord, we are praying that your kingdom would come and that it would come now, that it would come into this place.